0: Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. to take charge of whom you really are, and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, and I have a fantastic show for you today that is a must-listen for anybody who is a parent, and um, I've been trying to get this woman on my show now for over a year, and it's just an entire honor to have her here today. And I'll introduce her in a moment, but I honestly think that her book, The Anti-Romantic Child, is a manual that needs to be right there with what to expect when you're expecting. It's, It's just this incredible book about her experience as a parent, and also her experience in guiding people to deal with things in life that are not what we hope, not ideal. And what does that bring up for each of us? It brings up fear, and fear is one of the things you heard in the introduction to this show that my show is here to help you with fear, here to help you with tools that will give you navigation qualities to a much richer life, a more embodied life, a spiritually mindful life. So, with that, I want to introduce Priscilla Gilman. Priscilla Gilman is a former professor of English literature at both Yale University and Vassar College, and the author of the acclaimed memoir, The Anti Romantic Child, a story of unexpected joy. Gilman writes regularly for publications including The Daily Beast, The New York Times, HuffPost Parents, and O, the Oprah Magazine, and she speaks frequently at schools, conferences, and organizations about parenting, autism, education, and literature. She lives in New York City with her family. The anti-romantic child was nominated for a Books for a Better Life Award for Best First Book, and there's so many other reasons you want to hire her to speak at your next event. So welcome, Priscilla Gilman. More! It's wonderful (laughs) to be here. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Uh, We... I got to say, it's such a big deal for me to have this hour with you. Thank you for giving me the time. But you've got so much to share with all people, even those that aren't parents, but specifically those that are. And I just want to say that your book, I had read it when it first came out during its um, release, but I reread it this week. And I wish you could see how many earmarks I have on this book. Because (gasps) it's interesting, you know, when you reread a book or rewatch a movie, there is a relationship with the material that's different depending upon where you are in your life. And the thing that struck me on my second read of your book was that you're really giving great energy and advice to people regarding just mindfulness and taking control of being the architect of your own healing. So with that, I just, I want you to help me remember when we met because I'm trying to remember when it was, and I'm having difficulty with what year it was. Do you remember? More. Yes. So it was it was many, many years ago.
2: I believe I was about 15, and I was taking classes at the studio that you were managing. And as was my mother and my sister, our whole family went to the studio. And you, your classes were my favorite classes because they combined work on the body and health with um, even at that point, Laura, a spiritual awareness um, and ability to take us from very high energy aerobics then down into a very soothing, calming, reflective place. And you also created this wonderful energy and this community in the class where each person, no matter how old they were, what their body was like, they felt like they were part of this sisterhood almost. And then I, after my freshman year at Yale, um, came home. I dropped out of school after three weeks. Uh, I didn't want to be in school anymore. I was completely burned out. I came back to the city. I was living on the Upper West Side. I was taking classes again at the studio. And someone suggested that I audition to be a teacher. (laughs) And so at that point, I auditioned. and then So that was 1989, 1989, um, when I auditioned to be a teacher. And then I worked for you. For all through college for three to four years at that wonderful, sacred studio that we've we've missed so much.
1: I know, and that was a place where community was gathering to work out, but we were really gathering to hold space for each other because as young as we were then and as innocent as we may have been emotionally then, we held each other through everything. And I think that it really reflects back to how we all need community and we all need to hold each other, to hold each other in those moments in life that are super hard. And when I think back to the timing of knowing you at that moment, you know, this is way before obviously your career takes off before you become a mom And now Mm -hmm. to see where your life has taken you, it gives me hope that you're out there guiding people because I know deeply that you are a guide. You are someone that radiates so much light, so much information. Um, Delightfully brilliant was how I described you on my Instagram page. (laughs) I love that for you.
2: (laughs) Thank you for that. And Laura, I have to say, you were one of the people... um, you know, I went straight from undergraduate at Yale into the Ph.D. program in English and began teaching when I was very young. I was about 25 when I had my first group of students, and they were like 20 or 21, just a few years younger. But my first teaching experience was teaching at Gilda um, under <laughs> your auspices, and I learned how to teach. I, I, I want to write a piece at some point about how everything you need to know in life and everything you need to know to be a good teacher, you could, you, I learned in that studio. Um, And you were one of my mentors, you're one of my teaching mentors, because there really was something about that, about that space and that teaching experience where we were seen as whole people, like we weren't seen just as our bodies or just as our minds, or just as whatever our credentials were when we came into the studio but there was something about tuning in to each individual person. And, you know, you were, remember we, we, I called you my big sister and you called me your little sister. It was like a yeah. sister relationship that we had. And yeah. I feel the same way about watching the evolution of your career and everything that you've done. I always knew that, you know, we, we both were learning, we're both still learning, but yeah. always felt so supported and so inspired by that little group of teachers there. Uh, and we supported each other through some pretty heavy stuff. And there was a lot going on in everyone's lives, I remember, at that time. And we were there for
1: We were dealing with crisis, actually. I guess the crisis yes, is, we it depends sure. on who you're asking. But, yeah, we were holding a lot of energy for each other and a lot of support. Yeah. Priscilla, I, I want to jump ahead. I, I want to talk about, I, I'm going to read this passage because I think this is a good place to start oh. with respect to your book. Um, and okay. to all the ways that I know there are so many people who need your help with this topic of a special needs child. In fact, I don't mm-hmm. think I've ever heard more often in conversation with clients that I work with individually, as well as just within the public. It seems like often I see now hyperlexia. Like it's it's a term I see often when. Those mm-hmm. that are parenting or dealing with a child that doesn't feel exactly um, right. But what I want to start mm-hmm. with in this beautiful passage, and this is a passage regarding this takes the listeners to your romantic and fervent relationship with William Wordsworth, the great poet, and. Mm-hmm. I just loved rereading this about, this is about you and your baby daddy, whose name is Richard, and and you write, "'One Mm -hmm. night we were sitting side by side on my blue and white striped couch, and Richard was at long last sharing fully the story of his family, how his parents met.' And then you went on to say that as you were listening to the story of his life, we would read Mm -hmm. lines out loud to each other and explain over their beauty and poignancy. We talk about how they evoked memories of our own childhoods. The green cover Mm -hmm. of the Wordsworth edition we used still evokes for me the sense of magical affinity we had in those days when poetry and love went hand in hand. So give our listeners... Tell us about William Wordsworth in your own words, which you beautifully describe sharing that connection with your baby daddy, Richard. For you, mm-hmm. what happened in your soul and heart when you first discovered the work of the great poet, William Wordsworth?
2: Oh, Lord. So it was after the year that I had spent um, teaching at Gilda, I went back to Yale and I took a class at Yale called Major English Poets, which was required for English majors. And I had never read Wordsworth other than a couple of poems in like a children's poetry book. I, I didn't, he wasn't, I liked Yeats and T.S. Eliot and the modern poets. Like, and, and I really did not know much about romantic poetry. And I, I read Wordsworth and Wordsworth is the great poet of childhood on the one hand. So he writes, he has these beautiful evocative descriptions of what it's like to be, have that freedom and that sense of um, immediacy and passion and the ability to immerse yourself in nature and to play and to be creative when you're a child. And then on the other hand, Wordsworth is the great poet of loss. Uh, the Intimations Code, which uh, Splendor in the Grass, that wonderful movie with Warren Beatty and, and Natalie Wood, they read that poem in English class. Uh, And the famous, most famous lines from that poem, though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower. And that's childhood for him. We will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. So for me, reading this as a 20-year-old in college, it reminded me, it, it evoked for me, these memories of what I saw then as my very magical and idealized childhood. Uh, I grew up with artistic parents who encouraged us to play imaginatively. We weren't really allowed to watch TV or listen to music, um, except for the Beatles, when we were very little and we played and we, we were outside in nature a lot. And then when my parents split up when I was 10, like that whole period just ended abruptly. I lost my father. I didn't see him much over the next 10 years um, and my sort of sense of childhood innocence was lost. And so when I first read Wordsworth, that's what it evoked for me. That feeling of this gap between the innocent time of my childhood and the sense of loss, losing the ability to be a sort of unself conscious child. Um, and so that's what he evoked for me initially. And then do you want me to talk about how it evolved over time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yep. <laughs> so the passage that you read and I think you're the only person who's ever pointed to that passage and, and, I'm, and I'm grateful to you my blue and white striped sofa my Jennifer convertible in my little studio apartment in New Haven sitting there with Richard um, who I met in the graduate program at Yale um, my ex-husband and he also had had a lot of loss in his life his parents uh, his father had NS and died when he was 54 his mother had breast cancer and also died at 54. Uh. And yeah, and when I met, when we met, his father had died six months before and his mother had just found out that her breast cancer was stage four. Uh. So, you know, from the outset, I think we connected in a way over a sense of having lost uh, a happy, intact family that we remembered from our early childhood. And we both wanted to be parents very much and we both love literature and so I felt I found somebody that I could both parent with and share a passion for literature and a career with.
1: And so that was really
2: beautiful and, and uh, expansive. And I wrote my dissertation on Wordsworth, AL. Uh, Wordsworth and Jane Austen, actually. Um, yeah. I wrote on Jane Austen also on Pride and Prejudice. Uh, and then when I, when I had Benjamin, my first baby, when I was 28, seems so young now, Wordsworth, we gave him um, little Wordsworth for children books. And so he used to walk around reciting Wordsworth's poetry. and um but pretty early on, uh, there's there seemed to be something different about them,
1: and there's something. two children. so listeners, there's Benjamin and James, um yeah. so two two children. So Benjamin's your first baby, and you're noticing. Yeah. What You talk about this in the book, but for the listener's purpose, what is the age where you're saying to yourself, having never been a parent because it's your first baby, something's right. off, something's different?
2: You know, Laura, I would actually say that I I felt this from the minute he was born. But I continually either was talked out of my concerns by other people or I talked myself out of them. He never wanted to be held when he was an infant. He, if I held him close to me, he would arch his body away. He did make eye contact with me, and he did become quite smiley, but he was very, very happy being by himself. He just was not a tactile baby at all. And then when he was around 16 months, 18 months, we started noticing strange, he would have panic attacks, Um, what I would consider a panic attack in a crowded party, for example, or if, like, the sun was shining on his face. Uh, in a way that felt aversive to him. He would, and he would sneeze, like cry hysterically. And I remember there was one Sesame Street video where James Taylor was singing with some kids. And we're big James Taylor fans, and he was rapped when James Taylor was singing, but once the children started to sing, some of them were singing out of tune because they were little kids and they were just singing. And he looked at me with this look of absolute horror on his face, and he started shaking and sobbing hysterically. Until I would turn it off, hmm. and you know it was just things like that. But then, and then he started to read when he was about eighteen months old. He was counting to a hundred, and he was saying the alphabet backwards and forwards. When he was wow. two, he started to read fluently. Wow! And at first, I thought he had just memorized things. So he, you know, he would take Goodnight Moon and he would open it up and he would start to read it and turn the page and read the next line. And I thought, oh, he's just memorized it because we've read it to him so many times. But then he would walk up and, like, take a a page of my dissertation and start reading it out loud fluently with perfect intonation. Wow. So, you know, of course, we're thinking, okay, we're both English professors and, you know, he's reading just a little bit early. But he was obsessed with reading and he did not want to play. He did not like stuffed animals. He didn't want to play with me at all. Uh, he didn't want me to hug him. He didn't want me to kiss him. So I, I would mention this periodically to my mom or my pediatrician. And, and I remember the pediatrician once said, I said, you know, he's obsessed with reading and counting. And he doesn't really seem to want to play. And he has trouble chewing. I was sort of describing a, a number of concerns that I had tentatively because I felt, oh, maybe I'm just, you know, an overly anxious mother. And I didn't want to. Be that, and my pediatrician looked at me and said, "Priscilla, half the Yale faculty was like this when they were his age." Hmm. And I, I remember thinking to myself, Laura, thinking, to myself, "Well, I'm not sure that that's actually reassuring." There are a lot of weirdos walking around here, but you know, I, I allowed myself to be kind of talked out of it. And then when I really began to take it seriously and investigate and research was when a preschool that we applied to called me when he was about two years. 10 months old and I was pregnant. I was three months pregnant with my second son. And the preschool called me and said that they had concerns about how he had behaved in the quote unquote play date, but it's really like an evaluation interview that we took him to.
1: Well, you know, you, you use the word romantic not only in your title, but in the description of your own childhood. And I I want to go back to that as we're discussing these moments and telltale intuitive signs, as you say, as, as the moment mm-hmm. he was born. And I think one mm-hmm. of the things that strikes me as really important to give dialogue to is that how we're raised is how we project the assumption of having children, raising children. Yeah. The kind of life yep. they will give us will be the sort of life we were given. And when you speak of exactly. romantic, I really related to that because of my own life in New Orleans as a child. And just I could feel the, the, the fabric of your childhood with, you know, great intellectualism, New York City, poetry, brownstones, um, fascinating mm-hmm. parents. And so I'm just struck and feeling very uh, compassionate about what it must have been like for you at the point that you are having this baby, as your now child who's in the world, and nothing is matching with the way mm-hmm. you had imagined it to be, and I must, mm-hmm. I must, I must assume that that is common for so many parents, where you just think your child will be normal and exactly like you imagine them to be, and they're nothing like that. So I it wanna, helped. I wanna mention. I would just that that brings up grief and loneliness for me as the parent, imagining the parent in that position. And you speak of lonely a lot in your book and it's helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe just address that a little bit because we're saying the word romantic, but really it's, you know, projecting that this will happen when you Absolutely. give birth and have a baby.
2: Absolutely. lore that is so right. And you know, I think one of the things that um, Benjamin, I mean, he's taught me the de- in the dedication to my book, I dedicated it to him, and I, I thank him for teaching me so much more than I could ever possibly imagine via a quote from Wordsworth. And one of the most important things that he taught me, which I think every parent needs to learn, and I was forced to learn it. I was compelled to learn it because I, at a very early point, because I had a child that would not allow me to see him or parent him the way that I had been seen and parented as a child. It just was impossible. He had no interest in any of the things that I had been interested in as a little child. He didn't like the stuffed animals. You know, I was, I, when I was a little girl, I had 150-plus stuffed animals, and I loved them, and I was their mother, and I was nurturing them and playing with them all the time, and I loved to make up imaginative games. And my father... Would play these games with me and my sister and was very invested in our imaginative universe. And so I was imagining that I would be to my children as my father had been to me and my sister. And that it would allow me to go back into that place of play and imagination and storytelling and hugs and affection and snuggling. My father was very physically affectionate with us. And Benjamin just had absolutely no interest in that. I mean, in fact, it was, it was, um, oppressive to him if I would kiss or hug him he would like he would take my arm and remove it from his body if I would put it around him hmm. and I felt so very very lonely um, in those first months and years I was also having difficulty in my marriage and I felt um, just at a distance from Benj in a way that that baffled me. Like I couldn't figure out how to give him what he wanted or, and I think I've described this to people um, as withdraw. I had to withdraw a projection, right? Mm. Very, very early on. I had to see Mm. this child is not me. He doesn't need and want what I needed and wanted. And I, I adjusted to that pretty early and I, accommodated myself to what he wanted and needed. And I figured out ways to connect with him unconventionally. So, for example, he would never want to talk. He, d- he didn't like to have conversation. Um, and he would speak, but if he sp- he, most of his speech, I later found out, was he would echo things that he had heard. He wouldn't be able- He wasn't able to generate original language. So he never said hi, for example. If, if you said hi, Benj, he would say, hi, Benj, back to you. He would echo it. He would never say mommy or anything like that. But one of the ways that I could get him to pay attention and sort of connect with me and smile and laugh and engage was if I sang to him. He was always very interested in music. And so we would come up with these things where I would sing one line of a song and he would sing it back to me. Or we would read and I would read one line and he would read another line. And so I I, I was at a point where I was feeling that I had forged connection with him. And I was feeling close to him. And I was thinking to myself, you know, he's not me and that's okay. Uh, It's okay that he's not me. I'm connecting with him in surprising and delightful ways. And I I was at the point that the school came to me with concern, feeling close to him. And then hearing from the school, he doesn't know, he's not talking to the teachers appropriately. He's not connecting with other children appropriately. He seems overly fixated on the letters and numbers in the room. Mm And then reading on the internet about hyperlexia and seeing all of these things that I had taken to be signs of his uniqueness and his beauty and his wondrous originality listed as symptoms of hyperlexia, right? Like they love to repeat things. They can be obsessed with reading. They can do this. And it was all of a sudden this unique and beautiful and irreplaceable being that I cherished, my little boy, was being reduced to a set of symptoms, right? That his personality was being described as a, as a disorder. And that was what was so devastating in those early days, um, being made to feel that I wasn't actually connecting with him. These, you know, these websites would say, oh, you know, when they sing and when they recite literature or poetry or Sesame Street skits, in his case, he loves to be both Ernie and Bert. Um, it's just mindless parody. There's no emotional connection to it. Um, They're basically describing these kids as automatons, essentially. Mm
1: -hmm. And I
2: knew that wasn't true. And I resisted it. And I knew that there was, that he was not merely uh, parroting. And that I needed to tap into his interest in words and literature and music in order to help him connect socially. And I'm so well, glad that I did. I mean, we know, we know so much more about it now, but I mean, it's, this is 2002 and there was just yeah. no knowledge about how, to, about how to handle it. And the other thing is that, you know, I didn't, he didn't get an autism diagnosis at that point, um, but it was clear that he was somewhere on the autism spectrum. I mean, in my mind, it was clear and the prognoses were just incredibly dire Right. It was, you know, 80 percent of autistic kids will end up in institutions um, or unable to live independently, unable to ever forge friendships or social connections. Um, and one of the reasons that I started giving talks about binge and that I ultimately wrote the book was that I didn't want, you know, you mentioned loneliness before, Laura. I didn't want other parents to be in the position that I was in, a feeling uh, completely Alone, uh, with no sense of solidarity with other parents, um, that it was merely these kind of dispassionate experts laying out the dire statistics, and not really helping me to look at Benjamin's strengths and use those to address his weaknesses. Um, or I don't even like the word weakness; um, his challenges, you know, his areas of challenge. Well, you write in we, your which is what we did.
1: You write in in your book that he had a speech disorder, sensory integration, Mm -hmm. dysfunction, motor delays. Mm -hmm. He was both Mm -hmm. underreactive and overreactive to sensory stimuli. He needed occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech and language therapy, sensory integration therapy. These harsh, ugly words and bland, cold acronyms soon became as familiar to us as the brush, comb, and mush oh. from Goodnight Moon in our discourse about bench. Mm-hmm. So, so, Priscilla, do you think parents should avoid going on the web? To now, with the progress you mentioned that's been made, do you do you think the web is? Uh, nightmare, because it does create even more of this fear. And what you're speaking about is ultimately optimism, tapping into the language, the understanding, the excelling of this particular type of thinking. And so how would you guide the parent today who's got the little baby that's maybe two or a little child, and they're scared, Mm -hmm. they feel some of these feelings that you felt initially, where do they go Mm -hmm. to get progressive help that is more in line with what you're suggesting versus what one might find on the web? Yeah,
2: I mean, I would hope that today there would be better resources on the web. Um, But what I would say in terms of what kinds of people and what kinds of organizations and what kinds of specialists to look for If somebody starts to talk about your child to you or you start to feel when you're reading a resource that they're generalizing about children, children, there was a phrase that would always send a shiver down my spine when somebody would say to me, children like Benj, do this, or children like Benj, don't like this. And I would always say, I want you to tune in to my individual child, this little child in front of you, because... I often say this: If you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Yes, there are some general features um, that are consistent, but the best therapists that we worked with, the best teachers that he's had, the best people in my life that have supported and helped me have always been the people who wanted to get to know him in all his complexity, to understand his unique profile, to. Listen to, and also to listen to me and to Richard, who because the parents really are the experts on their child. And you never want to be made to feel by any expert, quote-unquote expert, you know, whether it's a pediatrician or someone on the Internet, um, that this person knows your child better than you do, because they don't. Uh, it, It really should be a collaborative process when you're working with anyone who's evaluating your child, when you're working with a doctor, when you're working with a school, there always has to be that sense of give and take. And there has to be, you have to feel respected. Um, Your perspective needs to be respected by the professional. And the other thing I would say, Laura, is that you always want, when you're reading something, because there are many wonderful books um, that I would recommend for parents of children who have special needs, um, and really... Uh, parenting in general, you know, I loved what you said about my book. Um, I mean, who wouldn't love this? You know, being next to you, what to expect and you're expecting. Um, it's funny because my book is about the unexpected, right? So I had what to expect and you're expecting. And I remember checking, you know, every month they give you the milestones that your child is supposed to be meeting. And so you feel, okay, woo, my child has met them. And Benj did meet all his milestones. But that book doesn't account for all the unexpected, dimensions of being a parent and I think Benj my experience with Benj really is every parent's experience writ large right in a more dramatic way because nobody gets the child that they expected every mm-hmm. child is a surprise to their parents, sure. right and I think becoming the best parents that we can be is really all about tuning in to the unique little person that's in front of you Mm-hmm. And I have you know, I have two children who could not be more different. Um, and I parent them differently. I don't parent them in the same way because it, it well, wouldn't work.
1: Yeah, well said. And and what I'm feeling in all of this that is so valuable for anyone listening who might not be a parent is that really what Benj ended up teaching you is a particular mindfulness that required you to become more present and to be more tuned in to him, which I do believe there is such a formulaic approach to parenting, and there is a competitiveness that is so distressful to me about parenting. And we're talking about love here. We're talking about knowing your child, tuning in, figuring out who this little being is, and being able to keep the notion of blooming with that child In the face of any adversity or unknown and and not being so attached to this is what it looks like. This is what it should feel like. This is how a child will be. None of that should be in the brain, but it is very challenging not to have it there because we are so overwhelmed by this sort of. Competitive, comparative mindset. So, so in a way, I feel like, and and I know you mentioned to me that you are now on the path of getting into a meditation teacher training program. But I'm struck as a yeah. person who's been studying mindfulness now actively for many years that Benj was your guru. He was, Laura.
2: He absolutely <laughs> was. He really was. I mean, at one point in the book, I talk about, um, I talk about how, he has, how he helped me to learn to inhabit the present moment and to um, detach from outcome. And to. Um, I think there's, there's a quote from Toni Morrison that I use at some point. Um, if you surrender to the air, you could ride it. It's from the mm-hmm. Song of Solomon. I love, yeah, Song of Solomon her novel. Yep. Love it, and you know, it, it's funny, and it's it's a paradox, Laura, because Benj himself, although he's and he's actually Laura, about to start taking a meditation class himself. I'm having him; he's going to take a, a class with Tara Brock,
1: mm-hmm. who I love is Tara. one of the
2: meditation teachers that I love. Yep. Um, because I think it'll really help him. But I, um, you know, Benj needed certainty. He was very, very, and I think this is, this is true um, of most autistic people that there's, they have difficulty with the unexpected. I mean, Benjamin didn't like surprises. He didn't like the unexpected. If there was a change in schedule, if he got a cup, if I gave him a cup that wasn't his regular cup, if uh, you know, I, I, there was a shirt that wasn't the right shirt that he wanted, if his blocks got out of alignment Uh, He would get very nervous. He would get very anxious, even panicky. And and, and a lot of the therapy and the therapeutic work that we did with him was helping him to become comfortable with change, helping him to become comfortable with taking risks, um, to move through fear, and open himself up to the unexpected. And, you know, I remember one day he was, working with his occupational therapist. And one of the things that they did, she would bring a bucket. It was called a sensory bucket. And it was filled with either sand or goo. And she would hide little things in it. And he would have to plunge his hands down into this and feel around and grab different things, which would have different kinds of textures that maybe would be a little scary. Or, and he couldn't see, right, what he was going to grab. And I remember walking by and thinking, wow, this is a great metaphor for what we all need to learn how to do, or maybe I don't want to say need to learn, but um, it is something that it would benefit all of us to learn, which is detaching from the need to control our experience and to know in advance what's going to happen, right? Because I had been very, um, my life had been planned out from a very young age. I went straight from undergrad into grad school uh, and then hired in my fifth year of grad school as a professor. And I sort of went along not questioning that maybe it wasn't the right path for me, um, just thinking, like, this is my path and this is what I'm meant to do and I'm going to do this. And, um, you know, I've had three careers now, um, maybe four, as I'm about to go into this meditation teacher training program. Uh, and I, you know, I think that I would never have been able to step out of academia and take a risk and write a memoir and be vulnerable in print. Uh, if I hadn't had the experience of parenting Benjamin, who absolutely was my guru, in it, and in Wordsworthian terms, Laura, we would call him, um, in the intimations Ode, Wordsworth's great poem about the little baby, he talks about the baby um, as possessing a, a great wisdom, um, being a seer, S-E-E-R, seer blessed, Um, and a mighty prophet. The baby is a mighty prophet. The baby is a seer-blessed. And um, when Benj was born, I got a gift. This is how I start my book from my former professor, and they were these little onesies from Old Navy, and he had stenciled across the front of these onesies, mighty prophet and seer-blessed. And I remember thinking when Benj was a baby, this is so ironic because Benj doesn't seem romantic. He's not cuddling with me. And also he wasn't romantic in the way that babies aren't and all new parents. You know, this is another thing that my I really wanted to help new moms with, which is like you think it's going to be all blissful looking into each other's eyes and breastfeeding and lovely connection. And then you have this like stinky diaper crying baby who's up all night and it's not romantic at all. Um, but then ultimately, you know, I think Benj, sh- the title of my book is ironic, right? Because Benj... Sh- put me in touch with a much deeper kind of romanticism, which is the romanticism of awe and wonder and sublimity. And you can only have awe and wonder and sublimity in your life if you're not trying to control it.
1: Well, and I want to read the passage you just referred to because it's one of my many favorites. And it reads, (laughs) A month after Benja's delivery, I was feeling anything but restored. I had never been so exhausted, emotionally and physically, in my life. And when I opened the package containing the onesies from the professor who'd introduced me to Wordsworth, My reaction was one of simultaneous gratitude and bemusement. The contrast between my spit-up covered, red-faced, smelly diapered, caterwauling baby and the elevated language emblazoned across his new clothes was striking, to say the least. (laughs) Having my own child had shown me just how idealized and dematerialized Wordsworth's picture of infancy was. But the true extent of the difference between conventional ideas of a romantic child and the reality of my own child would only be revealed in time, for it was more than the ordinary disillusionments many first-time mothers face, or the sheer unrelenting physicality of a newborn that had given me pause. There was something about Bench himself that seemed uniquely anti-romantic." Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so that's so vivid. And, and, and now as we fast forward to the current moment of life, here you are mm-hmm. with this great understanding of being mindful, being present. Perhaps there is less seduction in the idea of romantic. I mean, where, where do you where do you phrase or frame romantic now? If someone said, Priscilla, what does it mean to you? Romantic.
2: Yeah, I taught a class on, on romantic poetry, uh, last spring for the first time in a long time. And so I had to think about this lore and I had to think about, um, you know, what's valuable and, and worthy and, um, and still influencing me. I absolutely consider myself still a romantic in both the, the capital R, the lower case of R, sense. Um, and I think what, what got burned off was a kind of superficial, sentimental version of Romanticism. Um, And what I have even more powerfully today is a deeper sense of Romanticism, which is an approach to life and relationships that values open-heartedness, fearlessness. Um, I mean, we all have fear at times, but cultivating an attitude of fearlessness or working through fear Um, Being open to surprise, celebrating the unexpected, moving away from a kind of overly rational, rigid way of approaching experiences or people. Um, I I, I see romanticism as uh, something that celebrates individuality. Wordsworth is actually... One, and, 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 one of the most beautiful things about my experience with Benj was that, you know, initially when I was discovering all these challenges that he had when he went through the evaluation, and as you read earlier, you know, I'm told that he has, you know, in every domain, basically, he needs therapy and he has all these challenges. Um, and I was, I was angry at Wordsworth a little bit, you know, at that time. I was like, he gave me this vision of childhood that was false. But then ultimately, reading Wordsworth, teaching Wordsworth, um, and then using him in my books because I do, I put a bunch of his poems in the end of the book and I got to read them when I did my audiobooks, actually narrated my own audiobook. The poems mean so much more to me now because I think that there's an essential celebration in his poetry of individuality. Um, looking at each person, not projecting onto that person, not imposing um, a fantasy way of looking at someone, right? Not projecting. But really tuning into each person, and now whether that's a person that you is you're in a relationship with, whether that's your child, whether that's a student, um, a family member, and tuning into what makes that person beautifully unique, and learning to connect with that person in a unique way. So it really, that I think, um, you know, Wordsworth. There's a moment in Wordsworth. I don't know if I can quote it exactly, but he says, um, "Each of us has there's a point." in each of our souls where we stand single. Uh, This I, and I think he says celebrate, and I make space for incommunicable powers.
1: Hmm.
2: And it's such an incredibly powerful thing, learning how to make space for other people, learning how to take them on their own terms and not impose your own prejudgments, right? I mean, I I often say that Benj is maybe a much less judgmental Person and a much more open person. Um, And there's, you know, I think there's a moment um, towards the end of Kindernabbee where Wordsworth's other great short lyric poem, which is a poem that is to his sister. And he's writing to his sister about how he wants to, what he wants to teach her and what he wants her to be able to experience. And you know, I, I do feel that, that I've learned as much from Benj as I've taught him and that Benj has been my greatest teacher and continues to be my greatest teacher and um, that I've learned more from him than I ever learned in a graduate class at Yale, for example. Um, but the literature that I read in those classes helped me to cope with sadness and that feeling of loneliness, um, it gave me words for what I was experiencing. And so it, in a way, I think I, you started off you know, our conversation by talking about rereading my book. And I think rereading literature and seeing it, um, through new eyes and with new perspective and seeing new depths in it as we go through our lives and, and our lives have evolved. I think that's a really beautiful and meaningful thing. And one day I, I do, I want to write a book about rereading, um, and you know revisiting books and poems that we loved when we were young and how their meanings change but also how some of the most essential and most valuable meanings that they had for us when we were younger remain the same and just get deeper
1: well and i think the key in this life that we have that is so so short is not to let the fear close your heart And to allow the grief, the loneliness to open your heart. And then, with that, everyone looks different, everyone feels different. And then there is a sense of being fully here and present without that future or projected idea of what, quote, should be. And this is why in my early work with mindfulness, it was said that you must take should out of your vocabulary. And I think that's such a great exercise because wherever you're shoulding anything is usually um, certainly not. Now, it's a projection or a future vision. And with parenting, again, I just think that is such a valuable tool and a takeaway from what you're sharing in your experience. Priscilla, tell us where Benjamin is today. What, what is happening in his life currently? Oh, my Ben. She actually just
2: walked past and walked out the door to go to his internship at uh, Teachers College, where he has an internship in the music department at Teachers College. So he is 18 years old, Lord. He Uh is six feet two. He, uh, I know, it's amazing. He graduated from high school uh, in June. He is going to Vassar uh, for college, but he's taking a gap year because I am a big believer in taking things slowly. And um, he, in his gap year, he is playing in a classical guitar orchestra. He is doing a tech internship um, with a tech company that works with kids with special needs. He's doing this internship at Teachers College. He's studying voice. He studies classical guitar with a Juilliard teacher. And he is his little brother's math and science tutor. <laughs> oh, wow. That's so cool. Yeah.
1: That is yeah. so cool. So and- he,
2: he has come incredibly far, Lord. Um, he is I, I, I honestly have to say that one of the one of the questions that I got asked the most early on uh, when I was giving talks about Ben was, "Do you think he'll be able to go to college? Do you think he'll be able to live independently?" And I and I didn't know. I didn't know. Uh, but I think, and up until even like when we were applying to college for him a year ago, I didn't know if he could go to a school where he could live away from home. I wasn't sure. But I think one of the most important lessons of my experience, and I would and I would urge this on other parents is not to project um, outcomes, whether they be positive or negative, to take your child day by day, month by month, year by year, never assume that, you know, what they're going to be able to do, handle cope with or not, and really just adjust continually, remaining open, looking at them, um, seeing what they're ready for. And, I could never in a million years have predicted that this is where Benj was going to be at this point. I mean, the little three-year-old who had no original language, couldn't walk up and down stairs, couldn't feed himself, uh, had absolutely no interest in forging any kind of social connection, was the class speaker at his graduation, has lots of close friends, uh, is fully engaged in life, social connections, and going to a mainstream college, you know, it, it, it's, it's unfathomable to me. Um, it, it would have been at that point.
1: So anybody can get through this is, is one of the things that I'm feeling. Like, I'm certain there must be a hopelessness if you're in the early stages of feeling um, the reality of a special needs child. But not only do you give great, hope for anyone in that position, but so does Benjamin. And so anyone out there listening, realize that there are options and choices and directions that you and your child will go that you can't imagine right now, but they're there for you to find. There are places to go that don't make this the dire situation that it can feel like. And that hope is so important. Absolutely. And,
2: you know, Laura, the other thing I'll say is that many autistic kids won't have, won't won't go to a mainstream school or they won't um, live independently. And one of the things that, um, but they will have beautiful, meaningful lives. And I think that's another important um, lesson of my experience. And it relates to what you were saying about shoulds. There's no one right way to have a meaningful and successful life. And, you know, when people say to me, oh, he's going to Vassar, so that means that you succeeded and you, you cured him. Um, you know, I'll always say, or you fixed him and you made it okay. And I'll always say, you know what, he didn't need to be cured and he didn't need to be fixed. Because autism, in my mind, is not a disease that you need to be cured of. He is still autistic. He will always be autistic. He still struggles with anxiety. He struggles with open-ended situations. He will always have challenges. Many of his gifts and many of his strengths are also associated with his autism, however, right? Um, But the other thing is Vassar and going to Vassar and um, excelling in school, you know, that's... and and playing music and all those things. Those are the things that Benj loves to do. Like, he's a school kid. He loves to be in school. He loves to be learning. He's going to triple major in math, computer science, and music. Uh, He's a very, very academic and intellectual kid, And so I helped him, his father helped him, his teachers at school, everything, helped him to become the person that he wants to be and that he was meant to be. But, you know, I know another autistic boy who, he works as a beekeeper and he's Mm nonverbal. He's never spoken. Uh, He loves animals and he loves music and he has a very meaningful life doing that. There are other autistic or children with Down syndrome, um, or uh, children with any other kind of special need, where it's really—I would urge the parents—tune into what your child loves, tune into what your child is passionate about, and help enable them to live a life where they're going to be able to get up in the morning and feel happy about what they're doing, and feel a sense of meaning and a sense of fulfillment. And that looks very different for different kids. And I don't want. Benjamin's outcome to ever be seen as a kind of normative thing, right? Or, or a kind of should. Like, if you don't get to that stage or that outcome, you haven't succeeded because that's absolutely not
1: right. Um, and it's I'm, really so about. I, it's really about. Finish that, please. Um, I think
2: it's really about helping your child become who they are, um, who they essentially are. And supporting them in flourishing as their unique being.
1: And, and I wanted to jump in and say, as another takeaway to your list, set yourself free from others' opinions. Set yeah, yourself but, free yeah. from others' opinions. That's got to be up there, too, with everything you're valuably sharing that someone can take away from this.
2: Lord. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I had to set myself free from the opinions of people who said, you're crazy that you're taking the risk of sending him away to school, right? Um, he's gonna dorm. And he, I sent him away a few summers ago. I mean, I don't want to put it to send him away, but he went to a sleepaway program and people said, oh, my God, you're crazy. He's never going to be able to handle it. He's gonna, you're going to get all these calls and he's going to have to come home. You have to listen to that inner voice. You're still a small voice your intuition as a parent, trust your intuition. You know your child better than anyone else does. And you may, you will make mistakes. I've made mistakes. Um, Many mistakes. We all make mistakes. I'm sure I will make more mistakes. But if you really listen to your instinct and your gut, and you know, Laura, you and I were talking a little bit in email about codependency because I know you had Lisa Romano on last week and I love her. She's amazing. Um, you know, and I think that one thing I consider myself also a recovering codependent. Hmm. Um, one thing that, that we lose sight of as codependents is trusting our own instincts and our own voice and our own feelings in a situation. That's so important. And Benjamin taught me how to do that, right? The importance of doing that. I've got to trust my gut and I've got to listen to, what that little voice inside me is telling me about how to handle each new challenge that comes up, right? Because it's going to continue. I mean, just because he's 18, right? He's always going to be my baby and there are always going to be challenging situations and um, unexpected things that happen. And it's about, you know, being resilient and being open um, and approaching those situations with as little fear as possible, because Laura, you're so right about fear being this, Inhibiting, constricting energy that prevents us from being able to trust our intuition.
1: Most yeah. Of the time. And, well, and that's why I started this show because I realize in my private practice how little information people have that is supportive of their truest embodied self. Physically, psychologically, mentally, and um, certainly spiritually, for me is is a big one. But uh, but psychologically, m- mentally, physically, embodiment is is so many factors. And oh, I can't believe we have thirty seconds. My producer just said thirty seconds, <laughs> and I was thinking, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> and I I was I was struck by your um, William Wordsworth poem that says, "We talked with open heart and tongue, affectionate and true, a pair of friends." We are Priscilla Gilman. Thank you. And anyone who wants to find Priscilla Gilman, important to know it's P R I S C I L L A G I L M A N dot com. And you can find social media and everything there. I adore you. I thank you. And I appreciate so deeply that you help all of us remember that you complete you. Thank you, Priscilla Gilman. I adore you, Laura.
0: Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us live again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin.